This first one, I'm not going to go into it. I'm going to refer you to it. Uh, I found it on Steve Quayle's web- website, Steve Quayle's World. Some of you are familiar with that one, Q-U-A-Y-L-E. Uh, this is by Brandon Smith, and it's entitled, The Hidden Motives Behind the Federal Reserve Taper. He does a very, very good job of explaining just what's going on and why what we see happening is happening. Uh, He addresses the fact that the Fed now has started tapering, uh, at least they say, uh, $10 a year from the inflation proofing, the QE that they have been doing. They've been threatening now to start a taper for several months, so they always prepare us for these things ahead of time. But he explains the motives going on behind the scene. And this will be presented, and has been, that when they start tapering, it means that the economy is getting better and that they can begin to back off from buying bonds and that the economy is going to survive and do better. And, in fact, he explains and shows how it's just the opposite. He feels that this is the beginning of the end game. In other words, they're starting this taper, and the Fed then is sort of backing into the shadows so they can say, hey, we were doing the right thing. We were trying to reduce the debt instead of increase it. But he feels that very soon now they're going to have a total default, is what he thinks is going to occur. Uh, that we will just repudiate our debt. And you already know that there is another debt ceiling crisis coming up uh, shortly after the new year. Uh, That there's going to be a political wrangling all over again, all over, just like before, only worse. And things have gotten worse. But he feels, and explains it very well, how he thinks that uh, it won't be long now until they do create a false flag, some kind of a disaster, uh, and also they will just then say, hey, uh, we can't pay our debts, we're just going to forget about them. That ties in, I think, pretty well with prophecy, at least in terms of what will happen. I'm not trying to set dates here or say this is happening in the next month or two or three, although he thinks so. Uh, Because I I just shy away from setting time limits because you never know how long something might go on, whether it's 30 days or 180 days or two years or what. But he feels it's getting very close because they have started this so-called tapering. Uh, I'm reminded of Isaiah 47 in which it says there that when this crisis comes and our military takeover occurs... We won't know, we won't suspect, we won't know it's coming. Now that doesn't mean some astute people who are observers can't see the signs and understand something is coming, because a few do, and the number is increasing uh, who see that something is so wrong within our country and within the world. Never mistake that the New World Order people, which will turn into the beast, is planning on governing the whole earth. And to do that, they have to get rid of the United States. 
It says that they will hate the whore, and God brands America as the whore in Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 18 as the one who has departed from God and gone a-whoring after other gods and other nations and other peoples. So they will destroy this country. That is what their motive, their purpose is. You can throw in Obadiah and show that the Edomite also is a part of it and will rejoice at the overthrowing of this country. And it appears to be getting very close. Jeremiah 50 tells us that our leadership in this country will also give their hand. In other words, they will agree to this and sell us out. That is also happening. Uh, But read this article, if you would. I think you will find it very, very enlightening. Now, you may already understand a lot of what he's saying, but he puts it in a very concise, very readable, easy-to-understand form, and it does tie in, I think, with Scripture. Also, as you know, I have looked at Daniel in the past and feel that we probably will attack Iran even as we have attacked Iraq uh, because the Bible explains there that it's talking about the Medes and the Persians uh, being attacked by us and then we get our horn broken. Uh, Here's another article written by a a lady named Melanie Phillips. Uh, Let's see, what site was that on? It's called Nuclear Holocaust, question mark. Yes, he can. And it shows that the accord that was reached in Europe just recently about sanctions in Iran and them agreeing to give up their nuclear program, blah, 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 is all just a facade. And in fact, Iran has said that, uh, but they are planning on going forward with another nuclear plant to prepare more uranium for bombs. So that's going on even as we are being duped by the mainstream media to believe that everything is under control over there, and it is not. We as a nation do not want to attack Iran, at least our government doesn't. Uh, And yet the people behind the scenes who control our government uh, do want that to happen. And I think Bible prophecy tells us it is going to happen. So, the stories in Isaiah 46 through 48 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 show that God will begin to protect his people and they will flee to Zion about the time that Babylon, America, is destroyed and the time of Revelation 18 when both a military takeover and a financial collapse occur. Well, this appears to be growing very close, and I thought it would be good to say a few things about it. I don't want to go into it in detail. Maybe when we're finished with our uh, present uh, series in Deuteronomy, I I might go back into some of this in more detail about what the prophecies actually show. But this is a very good primer, uh, both these articles. The one by Brandon Smith, The Hidden Motives Behind the Federal Reserve Taper, And this other one, uh, which you could just type in the name, Nuclear Holocaust, question mark, yes he can. And also, uh, an an author I have been reading quite a bit of lately is named Dave Hodges. 
is the common sense show. Uh, he has very, very good insight and very good sources to show what is going on in this country. He, had, uh, he has articles just this past week. He puts up one every day. But this past week, if you go through and read all of his articles, just look, type in Dave Hodges, H-O-D-G-E-S, or The Common Sense Show, and read this week's articles. Uh, they're eye-opening. They show what is going on, and uh, that's a good start, if you would look at those three to see what is happening. And you know how I try to assess these things, because there's a lot of disinformation and bad information on the Internet, too. We have to understand that. So, what is the criteria? How do you determine which authors are on track and which ones may be feeding you wrong information and have their own agenda to grind, or maybe they're part of the New World Order and they're just shills for it, pretending to be against it? <clears throat> you know, there are double agents all over the world and always have been. And the key to me is to read this book and what God says is going to happen and then compare that with what these Internet people say and then you can see which fits the Bible and what might not. Uh, that is the key, really, to understanding because it's hard to sort through everything that's out there. And you can be misled pretty easily. So I guess it's my job to show you in the Scriptures what God says is going to happen. And I have tried to do that over time, but maybe we need a review since these things seem to be coming closer and closer to happening. Uh, to see what God really says, and I referred you a few scriptures just now which do give some indication of what we need to be watching for. And these articles I just presented to you uh, go right along with what we see in the Bible. <clears throat> now let's get on to Deuteronomy 24. I want to, to get on through this. There are some very, very important chapters ahead for us. Not that all of it isn't important, it is, when we understand the spiritual significance of these physical laws, but some of it is very, very applicable to today in terms of what I've just been talking about with the news and, and uh, where we're headed. Anyway, in chapter 24, it says, When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. Now this is what Christ was referring to there in Matthew 19, when it said, uh, where the Pharisees questioned him, and says, well, why did uh, Moses allow divorce for essentially any cause? Uh, and he said from the beginning it wasn't so. But this is one of those things that God allowed for a time because of the hardness of their hearts, as Christ said. Now, there's some instruction here about the protocol of how things are to be handled if indeed a divorce did occur. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. So if he repudiates her and puts her away in this context in the Old Testament, she could go remarry. 
But that's not the end of the story. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and gives it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former or her first husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the eternal. And you shall not cause the land to sin, which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance." So a man was held to the decision he made to put her away. Now, if she chose not to remarry, I think the implication here is that he could take her back if they patched things up. On the other hand, if she married someone else and he either died or divorced her as well, then the former man could not take her back. That starts creating confusion it creates indecisiveness and uncommitted people who go back and forth and can't commit to a course of action. Now, this was just in that day, a physical marriage we're speaking of. But let's understand some spiritual ramifications here. I want to go to Jeremiah 3, first of all. So we might get some perspective here. Remember that Jeremiah, in fact all these prophets, are for the end time. Jeremiah 3. Here he say, says, They say if a man put away his wife, and she go from him and become another man's wife, shall he return to her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers... Yet return again to me, says the Eternal. So in a sense he's saying here that he is willing to waive that issue because as Ezekiel 16 and, and uh, Revelation 18 and other places indicate, Israel has gone a-whoring after many nations and other gods. And yet God says, return to me. I'm willing to overlook that you have done that. So, he is merciful and kind, and so on. Now, let's go on down. He talks about backsliding Israel in verse 6, and how they would not return. And in verse 7, at the end, it says, And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce... Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And then he talks about how they supposedly repented, but it was feigned. It was not a whole heart turning in verse 10. So God is willing to overlook that which has occurred and to take Israel back if Israel repents. But it has to be a genuine repentance. And that's where we find ourselves as a church today. When Herbert Armstrong died, and there was peace in his day, truth and peace, it says in the last verse of Isaiah 50, or 39, I mean. I think Hezekiah there uh, was a type of Herbert Armstrong, or Herbert Armstrong was a type of, Eli of uh, Ezekiel. And... 
his sons went out into the world into Babylon and became eunuchs in Babylon. Spiritually powerless, that has occurred. So now, uh, he talks about a new work beginning in Isaiah 40 that will go forward. And from there through 54, uh, it talks about the restoration of a remnant of the church. But that's not all there is to the story. But a comment, we must be sure that we turn with our whole heart back to God after having been booted out because of Laodiceanism, of apathy, of self-righteousness. And that's what Laodiceanism basically is, is self-righteousness. I am rich and increased with goods. I have need of nothing. I am righteous. And that is the biggest problem, probably, as I mentioned last week, within the church today, is self-righteousness. I'll not pursue it further at this point, but that's really what Laodiceanism is. You, they're synonymous, Laodiceanism and self-righteousness. I'm okay. It's the other guys that are the problem. Not me. Therefore, nobody repents. And we've been over that ground many, many times. Now, he does go on down and say in verse 14, Turn, O backsliding children, says the Eternal, for I am married to you, and I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastures according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. I think it's important to recognize here that God is not going to take the whole nation or the whole church back as the bride of Christ. Once she departed, once he divorced her, it is final. And we have indeed gone after other gods, ultimately Satan, and his way, and he is not going to take the church back as his bride. Do we understand that? Israel will not repent until the Great Tribulation, the seven last plagues leading up to Christ's return. And only 144,000 will be the bride of Christ, the first fruits. The rest will never be the bride of Christ. He will not take Israel back as his bride. He will take of her one of a family, two of a city, as he says here in Isaiah, I mean in Jeremiah 3. And if they truly repent from the heart, he will indeed take them as part of his bride. But not the whole. Only those who repent. So when he says, I will overlook it, I will take you back, it is only those who repent from the heart. Not feignedly, not lip service, but from the heart are the only ones he will work with. The rest can be children in his kingdom if they repent, but only one or two from here, one or two from there. He will gather them, as we know from other scriptures, from all over the earth, a few here, a few there, from north, south, east, and west, to Zion. And that's what he says right here, where they will be fed and nourished properly. Let's go to Isaiah 50 in connection with this. 
Now in 50, uh, the context is very clearly from the end of Herbert Armstrong's time in 39 and 40 through 54 is in talking about the end time work and the voice crying aloud in the wilderness and so on and how God is going to begin to restore. So 50 is right in the middle of that, just before he tells us to wake up and how the two witnesses will come together there in chapter 52, about 9, and then he has the chapter on Christ in 53, and then truly the gathering in 54. So we're getting into that context here in chapter 50. So this is for us. That's my point. Thus says the Eternal, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Well, who was our spiritual mother in this age? Worldwide Church of God. That's what he's talking about here in this end time prophecy. Whom I have put away. So he did, does say he put her away. He spewed her out of his mouth is what he did. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? In other words, he says, who did this? Who is responsible for this? You or me? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. So it falls not on God, but on us. The sin of Laodiceanism and self-righteousness that prevailed throughout the entire church, caused God to put us away because we thought we were really something. And the church itself went right back and set itself up on the base in Babylon, as Zechariah 5 tells us it would. The two unclean birds, the Tkachis, who set it back up in Babylon. And many, many people went with it and left the, tr- the truth. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinks because there is no water and dies for thirst. So God shows that He can save He is there to help. And then it talks about Christ down in verse, uh, well, four on down, how he gave his cheek to the smiters and so on, then plucked off the hair. So Christ is the answer to this divorce that not only ancient Israel, but the church, in that sense, recently has gone through. Now, God is currently looking for people who will respond to Christ in the proper way with all their heart, and He will deliver. Now, you'll recall that Christ told the Pharisees, the leaders of physical Judah and Israel, that He would have nothing to do with them until they would accept the New Testament ministry that He had set apart. End of Matthew 23, I think it is. So, God has put away the leaders of physical Israel. He has put away the church because the church was slated to marry Christ as well. Now, that, this marriage is one that is a pending marriage, not 
a physical marriage from the past between Christ and ancient Israel. He will not take ancient Israel back as his wife, as I said. He will take back only those who will repent from the heart and turn to him and be the kind of wife that he desires. Faithful, loyal, true, obedient, helpful, respectful, serving, giving, loving. That's the kind of bride that he is looking for. And how he judges that is how we treat one another. Are we kind, gentle, loving, serving, giving, helping, encouraging, strengthening one another? If we're doing the opposite, then we will be rejected as part of the bride of Christ and not be those one from here and two from there that he is going to draw together to do his final work. He is right now making those selections. Spewed. And now many, a few are being selected or chosen to finish the work. That's what's going on right now. We have a space, a period of time in which to repent. But I am afraid, or encouraged if you put it in another way, that that time is drawing very short. The way things look in this world today and the, the speed at which they are now beginning to let their intentions be known, that is, the beast and the false prophet, who are still playing, for the most part, behind the scenes, and a revelation when they are finally unveiled as to who they truly are. But they keep it hid in the meantime. I saw a cartoon <laughs> I thought was really good. It showed a flock of sheep all kind of lined up, looking away and there was one sheep over here and behind it was a sheep dog and over across the fence was a man and the one sheep says to the others I just know that that man and that dog are working together and the rest of the sheep said oh shut up you and your conspiracy thoughts well, that was very very apropos <laughs> God tells us there is a conspiracy going on, that we are not to fear, but to fear Him in Isaiah 7 and 8, and through that area, 8 especially. And Psalm 83 shows a coalition of nations and peoples who will come against us. And if you think they're not planning that behind the scenes right now, you don't have a clue. Go back to sheeple, sleeple. Because it is happening, and it is happening very, very rapidly, and it is beginning to be seen more and more. Because you can only keep it under cover so long. And once it is being discovered, and more and more people are waking up, you have to then make a move. And the movement is getting fairly close. You can only keep it together so long. And then they will destroy the world economy... You don't think nations are going to be upset if we do indeed default on the dollar and on our debts, of which we owe trillions and trillions of dollars to other countries? Would you be upset if your bank just took all the money out of your account and said, I'm sorry, we needed to pay off our debts? You deposited here, it's ours now. And actually, legally, that is correct. 
If it's there, it's theirs, legally. You don't think that way, but that's the way they think. And proof is in Cyprus, and will be in other places. But don't you think that the whole world is going to be upset at America if we are the ones who are blamed for bringing down the world's economy? It's being engineered, of course, in order to be replaced with a new economy, a worldwide one. But the petrodollar stands in the way of that. So this thing is coming, and it's coming pretty quickly. God is calling out a few that he will bring that they might proclaim his name in Zion. Let's go to one more. Back in uh, Malachi, chapter 3. He's talking in the same vein that both Jeremiah and Isaiah were, and Malachi is indeed an end-time prophecy, un, uh, undeniably, it even concludes showing the uh, work of the two witnesses and of the fire that is coming, and how he will send his messengers at the beginning of chapter 3. Two, uh, two is the one I guess I want here. Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the holiness of the Eternal, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. We know from Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 that the church today uh, is symbolized by Zion, by Jerusalem, by Judah. Uh, that is a very important key to understanding prophecy. So the church had married the daughter of a strange God. The Eternal will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an offering to the Eternal of hosts. So did God indeed then cut off the leaders and cut off the scholars from Worldwide Church of God? Yes, he did. Because they were seeking the daughter of a strange God. The ministry was being encouraged to go to Fuller Seminary and other Protestant colleges to get degrees. We know this story. They tried to get me to do that, and I asked for a transfer out of the uh, L.A. Basin at the time. So God spewed out the church along with its scholars. And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Eternal with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regards not the offering any more, or receives it with goodwill at your hand. So all the crying, all the praying that so many in the church might be doing today is falling on deaf ears. God is not listening. He says so right here. I will not receive the offering anymore, or receive it with good will at your hand. You can feignedly do this. You can act like you're members of the true church. But unless your heart is right, God will not hear. Yet you say, wherefore? Well, why? Because the eternal has been witnessed between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, 
Yet is she your companion and the wife of your covenant. Now, have we not believed through the years that we were in a marriage covenant with Christ as a church and that collectively we were the bride and yet we have turned away many from the truth or not followed it in the way that God wants us to follow it with our whole heart. So we have been acting treacherously toward ourselves, the projected bride of Christ, taking ourselves away from our intended to the one to whom we are betrothed. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek the seed of God. Christ is seeking the true seed of God. It has been genetically modified, if you will, so that the seed of God, the church, began to look more and more like the devil and was deleterious to our spiritual health. That is what has occurred. Now, in our physical nation, they have genetically modified the seed so that the crops now are unhealthful. And other countries will not, China just turned down a load of corn from the United States because they see that genetically modified grain is not good for you. Now, God recognizes that if his seed, those who are set aside to be holy and produce holiness, the fruit of the Spirit, proper fruit, good fruit, are in any way compromised, then that cannot be part of the bride of Christ. Because we have to be holy, true, spotless before him. Not taking on the world. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. So he's using the marriage analogy here, but in a larger sense, we're part of that bride. We are, in that sense, the bride of Christ's youth. And we have dealt treacherously against him by not departing from this world and by still allowing the culture, the society, the satanic world around us to affect us. So we need to take heed and be sure that we retain proper doctrine. Otherwise, God, Christ, will not receive us. He tells us if someone brings false doctrine, do not receive them, don't bid them Godspeed, have nothing to do with them. And Christ will have nothing to do with us if we depart from his truths. Once you prove something, you better stick with it. You can't just summarily toss it away and say, hey, I'm righteous. God does not allow that. For the Eternal, the God of Israel, says that he hates putting away, for one covers violence with his garment, and says the Eternal of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. Now, we have to be careful that we are honest and true and faithful and loyal with each other as the potential bride of Christ collectively. 
Of course, you know, when you're referring to marriage, you generally think of one man, one woman. But in this case, Christ is marrying the church collectively, or at least 144,000 from Adam on down today who have qualified. And this context ends in chapter 3 by saying, Behold, I will send my messenger, he shall prepare the way before me, and the eternal whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. So, this applies now. He's not referring back just to physical Israel. He's referring to the spiritual marriage between Christ and the church. And this is a warning given just before Christ returns suddenly to his temple. And he's not talking about the second coming there. He's talking about the coming of Zechariah 2 and 3, where he returns to his people, to his church, the remnant that he is drawing together. Now, it culminates in his return at the end of chapter 4. But he's talking here in the time period of when he sends a message ahead of time, before Christ returns, much as he sent John the Baptist before he appeared in his ministry the first time, to prepare the way to let people know that he was coming. And he says he will do the same thing again, and that's very clear in Matthew and Luke. So, Deuteronomy 24 certainly has an application today on a spiritual level, even though it was just a physical law then about physical marriage between uh, the people of Israel. But understand, if we depart from God, let's, let's turn to one more scripture, Second Peter 2. Let's understand what happens if we begin to let the things we have learned drift away from us. Second Peter 2, let's see, it's... Uh, oh, I'm in First Peter, that won't work. Uh, verse 19, let's start. Or verse 18. Uh, this whole chapter is talking about those who will come into the flock and begin to lead us astray. And it says down here, verse 18, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the desires of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. So he's talking about people who come in and begin to draw away those who came to a knowledge of the truth and have escaped the error of the world. Members of the church. While they promise them liberty, freedom from the government of man, freedom from church government is one of the key ones, so liberty or no government, they themselves are the servants of corruption or become tyrannical and try to replace those that they have said they are liberating us from. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. So the same thing was happening then that has been happening in the church in the modern era. There were false teachers who came in unawares, presumptuously set themselves up as teachers, and began to lead people astray. But notice verse 20. For if after they have escaped that is, the people, the members, 
The pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Emmanuel, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Going back to the pagan doctrines of the world. Giving up the precious truths that we have learned. Maybe not going clear into the world, but how do you, if you have proved the true calendar, reject it for whatever reason? When you have proved certain things, how do you reject them? Herbert Armstrong came to understand about government, didn't at the beginning, but he came to understand that all through the Bible it talks about the government of men under God who would oversee Israel and the church and so on, and we've seen many examples of it. And then you have a tyrannical, satanic attitude that there is no government and that man should not rule in the church. Contrary to everything God says. Quoting Hebrews where it says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and saying rule doesn't mean rule, it means oversight or overseer or whatever. And they overlook the word that begins that verse, or begins that sentence, obey. <laughs> oh, why don't they look up obey and see what it means in the Greek, instead of the other one? Because obedience is involved for those who have oversight of the church. So there's just yet another and a major false doctrine that is being perpetrated upon the entire church of God here and there where these men have crept in. We have to be careful that we do not leave the truths that we have learned from the church, from the Bible, and go back into a pagan way of doing things. Anarchy. Who, brethren? is the author of no government and confusion. That's Satan the devil. That is his doctrine. It is not God's. God has set up a hierarchy of the Father and the Son and the Bride and kings and priests that will rule over the entire world in the millennium. That's the way God does things. Satan is just the opposite. He says, I don't have to obey those that have the rule over me, the Father, the Son. I will take over. And he has all kinds of situations where there's absolute confusion because there is no clear leadership involved. That's not godly. That's satanic. Do we understand that? Why? Do we rub up against wolves in sheep's clothing and listen to that garbage? God warns us very clearly. And he is not going to take back those who repudiate what he has set up in any form or fashion. 
He cannot take them back because they have been defiled. Going after another god, Satan the devil, ultimately. Verse 5 of Deuteronomy 24 then, When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he has taken. So, God, in his mind, believes in a one-year honeymoon. Because of our jobs and our society today, uh, when people get married, they have an overnight honeymoon or a, a week in Hawaii or whatever, uh, or two, and then they get back to work. But God says for a marriage to have a good, solid foundation, the husband and the wife really should have a whole year to themselves to establish their relationship. Because when you get married, you are taking one background, one way of living in a family, one way of doing things, and combining it with another family background, different values, different ways of doing things, and you're bringing those two people together to live together in peace and harmony and to produce a functional family. And it is not easy to combine two backgrounds. And the further apart those cultures and backgrounds are, the more difficult it is to bring them together. So, God gave them a year. And I believe that that is the basis for the time right after the Great Tribulation when Christ returns and takes his bride, the 144,000, the first fruits, to his Father's throne. And they have a year there together to become better acquainted, to learn how to do the job that will be given the bride when Christ returns a year later. Uh, a year's honeymoon. The seven last plagues will be occurring on the earth during that time. This is pictured by the Day of Atonement, of course when we become at one or married with Christ, completely and totally through a change into spirit and to immortality and perfection, because none of us are qualified entirely at all to be the bride of Christ today. But there will be a great change that occurs. We need to be changing as much as we can to be qualified. And then once we're qualified, we'll be changed so that we will no longer ever want to be disloyal or unfaithful in any way to him. So we will have that time, and that may be the time that is cut short. Uh, he says that if it were not for the elect's sake, all flesh would be destroyed. Well, the time of the greatest jeopardy is not the tribulation, which some have assumed would be cut short, but that is set very specifically as 1,260 days, three and a half years, and 42 months. I don't think he's going to cut that short after stating it so many times, because there comes the seven last plagues. It says immediately after the tribulation of those days there at the end of Matthew 24. That the seven last plagues will then occur. That is when all mankind is threatened with being obliterated. And I think that's the time that he will cut short. So, 
Uh, We have slated ahead of us a one-year honeymoon, but it may get cut somewhat short in order to save flesh alive to go into the millennium. We're going to be kings and priests. We've got to have some subjects to rule, to lead, to guide, and to teach, to obey. They'll hear a voice behind them that says, don't go that way, go this way. We know those stories. Anyway, verse 6, No man shall take the nether or the upper millstone to pledge, for he has taken a man's life to pledge. This whole section has to do with loving your neighbor as yourself, essentially. And these are just examples. Uh, if a man made a living with, by grinding grain, you couldn't take either one of his stones because he couldn't grind without one of them. It takes two stones to grind meal. So you couldn't take a man's life to pledge. Uh, yeah, if you're going to loan some money or something, maybe you do need some collateral uh, to claim in case they don't pay. But the way he makes a living is not an honest and righteous way to do it. Uh, back in Great Britain, uh, before America began, and perhaps after, I don't remember exactly, but they had done, <coughs> excuse me, debtors' prisons. <coughs> and if you couldn't pay your debt, they put you in jail. Now, how are you going to make money and pay your debt if you're in jail? Not going to happen. <laughs> so they prevented a man, actually, from having any opportunity to pay the debt. So don't take away a man's way of making a living is the point. Uh, he might be able to pay if he can still make a living, but he can't if you take that away. Verse 6, no man shall take... Uh, no, I already read that. Verse 7, if a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel and makes merchandise of him or sells him, then that thief shall die and you shall put away evil from among you. They actually would take people as slaves and sell them. Now, that happened in Africa. Uh, some of the tribes there would capture people from other tribes or even their own tribes and sell them to the slave dealers. And that's how uh, the slaves came to America, essentially, as they were sold out by their own people. The slave traders didn't have to go and create war and capture the slaves. They were brought to the boat and sold and then brought over. And God says that's not to happen in Israel. Well, let's understand that even in our nation today, there is slavery going on. They keep it hid, but if you go to the right places at the right times and are observant, there is a great deal of slavery happening right now. Sex slaves and so on. Little girls are captured off the streets and boys and put into forced prostitution. And it occurs, and you'll see it on the news or in a paper, once in a while. And they're, they're capturing people all over the world and bringing them here, as well as capturing our own little children and girls and boys, doing the same thing. So if anyone steals from Israel, they were to be put to death. Now let's understand that in a spiritual connotation. If you are a member of the Church of God, one of spiritual Israel, because that's the only one that counts now. He's not going to marry physical Israel. Even in the millennium, as I said. 
Maybe we mistake that. The bride is only 144,000 firstfruits. That's it. The rest will be children in the kingdom. He's not going to remarry all Israel, and he is not going to remarry all the church. He is going to remarry only a tithe of the church, a total of 144,000. Now, here again, if anyone is coming and stealing the sheep of God, the spiritual Israelites, from the fold, they are to die. A wolf in sheep's clothing looks like a sheep. Even Satan's ministers are transformed as angels of light, and they appear to be what they aren't. It is so easy to be deceived. Even as a little girl on the street, 13, 14, 15 years old, can be conned by money or flashy cars or whatever to get in, and then they are taken into slavery. It happens so easily. Or just picked up, knocked out, and put in the car, or whatever. The same thing happens spiritually to the church today because God said there would be false teachers, false ministers, false prophets, presumptuous ones who would come and steal the sheep from the flock. We better listen. We better listen. And you better recognize it when you see it. How much chance does a sheep have against a wolf? Zero. You better not rub up to a wolf. Be warned. Also be warned that that wolf will look like a sheep. They will not survive. They will not be part of the kingdom of God. They will not be part of the bride of Christ. If they do not repent, they will go into the lake of fire. How plain can you get? Don't steal sheep. Verse 8, Take heed in the plague of leprosy that you observe diligently and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you as I commanded them so shall you observe to do. Now here's a principle had to do with leprosy, but anything communicable, okay? Leprosy was highly contagious. So is apostasy. So is false doctrine, because it seems easier. It seems more uh, fun. It seems better to a human carnal mind who does not want to strip away his own deception to recognize how carnal by nature we truly are, but anything that appeals to things being easier for us. How does the Protestant world capture people? By making it appear easier. You don't have to have works. You don't have to obey. All you have to do is accept Jesus. That's all you got to do. You're saved. And you'll always be saved, and you can't fall away, and you're going into heaven, as they put it. They make it easier. But the priests, the Levites, were set there to tell them how to handle these things. And he said, you be sure that you do what they say. 
we have to recognize communicable spiritual diseases within the church. And there is a way to keep it from spreading. Nine, remember what the Eternal your God did to Miriam, by the way, after that you were come forth out of Egypt. She was struck with leprosy, a communicable disease, and she would have died. But what was her sin? Her sin, along with Aaron, was saying, Moses, we're just as good as you are. Our word is just as important as yours is. Our teaching is just as good as yours. Matter of fact, it's probably better. It was rebellion against the constituted authority that God had placed in Israel. And it was that kind of rebellion, that kind of attitude, was highly communicable. And it is no stretch of the imagination to understand that God put upon her a communicable disease that would kill her and would spread to others. So that attitude of rebellion that Miriam and Aaron espoused, God dealt with very quickly, very carefully. He only gives so much time if we start communicating our spiritual diseases to others before he does something about it. When you do lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to fetch his pledge. You shall not stand abroad, and the man to whom you shall stand abroad, and the man to whom you do lend shall bring out the pledge abroad to you. Uh, we have had within our constitution in this country the protection of no one being able to invade our home, government included, and come in and take what we have. Now that the Constitution is being trashed by our government in Washington, uh, they are doing it, and will do it increasingly, and take us out and put us in labor camps and detention centers. It's coming very soon, just like it did in Russia, like it did in Germany, like it has always done throughout the history of the world. All political enemies will be round up, rounded up, either killed or put into detention centers and killed more slowly. But we should have privacy within our homes. According to this, you were, if, even if somebody owed you something, you could not disturb his privacy and go in his house to get it. You had to stay outside and have him bring it to you. And if he didn't do that... Perhaps there were other remedies, but you could not go in his house and get it. God guarantees here privacy. And that should be guaranteed spiritually as well. That we are safe within the church, the congregation, the bride of Christ, and no man should be allowed to come in and take us out. God guarantees that kind of privacy. Verse 13, or 12, uh, If the man be poor, you shall not sleep with his pledge. So if collateral is offered and a man is very poor and does not have much, you couldn't retain his pledge. You couldn't keep it overnight even, much less retain it forever, because the man was poor. In any case, you shall deliver him the pledge again when the sun goes down, 
that he may sleep in his own raiment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the eternal your God. Don't let a man who is so poor he has to hock his garments go to bed without his garments. Be merciful, be kind, be patient. Take care of people. Yeah, you might legally own his garment if he did not, at the end of the day, let's say he he loaned you his pajamas, if you will, in the morning and said, I'll pay you tonight when I get paid. And if he doesn't, you can't keep his pajamas. Once he's paid at the end of the day, and they used to pay at the end of every work day, cash on the barrel head. If he didn't do it, you couldn't keep his clothes. You gave them back to him. So there had to be mercy, even though you, he, if he didn't pay you, if he went down to the bar and blew it on beer, didn't pay you, you still couldn't keep that which would keep him warm and alive. So he does introduce a certain amount of mercy here. Thankfully, God's mercy endures forever. And we have pledged, we have committed ourselves to our husband-to-be. And we must be loyal and faithful. And if we are spiritually in bad shape, he is not going to withhold. He will never leave us nor forsake us, Paul says. It is we who are the problem. Didn't we read that earlier in Isaiah 50? Where it says, am I the one that causes divorce? Am I the one that sold you off? No, you sold yourselves off. And he is going to be willing to be merciful and kind and hope that we repay what we owe him. And what we owe him is loyalty and faithfulness and obedience. Our hearts. Heart, mind, body, and soul is what we owe him for what he did for us. And he will accept us if we will give that. But he gives us time. He doesn't destroy us. Space for repentance. Let the man have his pajamas back so he can sleep warm. Eventually, though, you need to pay. But even if we can't pay everything back, we'll get to that. At the end of seven years, those debts were forgiven. God ultimately will have to forgive all our transgressions. Because we cannot enter into the kingdom sinful. So he will forgive us and account us worthy, forgive all our sins, if we show that we are willing to grow and overcome and change. Now he says, if we grow and overcome, he will grant us to sit with him. Now you can say here, sit here and say, well, he'll just forgive me, no matter what. Then you're getting back to the born again can't fall away, once saved, always saved, thinking. No, he says, yeah, I'll have to forgive. But at the same time, I will not forgive unless you forgive one another, unless you overcome and grow and change. If you show me that you are willing to be different than you are and put aside what you want to do and serve me instead then that gives me good faith by your works that I should extend grace to you. Forgiveness and mercy 
and the kingdom of God. He's willing to bend clear over backwards, even as he said there in Isaiah 50. Though you've strayed from me, turn again to me, and I'll bring you one or two from here or there, because that's all that will repent, is one or two here and there. I hope that you and I can be among them. We were gathered here, one or two from here or there, were we not? I think God has started that process, and he's going to speed it up just about the time this all comes down. Isaiah 50, I mean, Jeremiah 50 starts with that, where they will come seeking Zion, saying, where is Zion? Just as Babylon is about to be destroyed. So it's going to go right up to the wire, brethren, before people see through a series of signs and wonders that God is going to do, as he says in Zechariah 3, to show people. And they won't know where the true Zion is. They will have heard of Jerusalem and Zion in the Middle East, and that won't be it. So they'll ask the way to Zion. How do we get there? What do you mean, this Zion? And they will come from north, south, east, and west, seeking righteousness and seeking God, just as this nation falls. That's the timing. Well, God is merciful to us and will draw us one or two from here and one or two from there. Who is he looking for? Those poor in spirit, meek, humble, not lay of the sin or self-righteous. I'm rich and increased with goods. I'm one of the chosen few. That's not the attitude that anyone he calls will have. And that's why we have to get rid of it here. The Laodiceanism that we still have has to go. And then God will show mercy on us. Meantime, he's not letting us go to bed without raiment. He's giving us a chance. Verse 14, You shall not oppress a hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of your brethren or of your strangers that are in your land within your gates. At his day you shall give him his hire. Neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and sets his heart upon it, lest he cry against you to the eternal and be sin to you. You can't defraud a laborer of his wages. They paid every day, and as the sun went down, you were to pay them, and not to defer that, because they were poor, and they depended on that day's wages to even eat. We must be very careful. Verse 16, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Now they were under the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, murder for murder, life for life. And uh, you couldn't commute the sentence. If they went to trial and it was discovered after the priests looked into it or the judges very carefully and guilt was established, you couldn't give a softer punishment. They had to die if it was a death sentence, but only for their own sin. Ezekiel goes into that in chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, in speaking of a spiritual context, 
we each will be judged based upon our own repentance, our own obedience, or if we go back to sin on that. But the Father will not punish, be punished for the Son or the Son for the Father. Each will stand on his own merit before Christ. Ezekiel makes that very clear as a spiritual principle, uh, not just a physical. Verse 17, You shall not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But you shall remember that you were a bondman in Mitzrayim, and the Eternal your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. We were also widows and strangers, spiritually, and God brought us into His truth. And we are to take care of one another. We are all spiritually poor, are we not? And we need to look after each other's needs. Encouragement, strengthening, helping. That is the job God has given us to do. When you cut down your harvest in the field, and have forgot a sheaf in the field, you shall not again go to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow that the Eternal your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Mitzrayim. Therefore I command you to do this thing. God had pity on Israel ultimately, and brought them out of slavery. And he brought us out of the slavery of Satan's system and this world. And we need to be thankful that he has done that and to give him credit and honor and glory for what he has done. But rather than being greedy, we need to be sure that we take care of one another. And though it is fine to harvest our own crop, if we have produce the fruit of the Spirit, then we should uh, reap that fruit and be part of the kingdom of God. But at the same time, we can't just be thankful that we are receiving spiritual blessings from God. We have to be sure others have some left that we share with them. So we can't be greedy about this. This is my salvation. Who cares about you? And though we might not say that, sometimes that's the way we come off with each other. We don't have the heart, the kindness, the love, the patience, the forgiveness, the mercy that we ought to have. And God is saying that in this scripture. Be merciful. Yeah, you go through and you get what's yours, but you don't go back and get every last thing. You leave some there for those who also have need. We learn by giving and serving, not by getting. And Herbert Armstrong brought that out so clearly in his message about a way of give and a way of get. He boiled it down to that, and there is a great deal of spiritual basis for it. Yes, we are here to receive and to be a part of the kingdom of God individually. But let's make sure that no one else starves to death spiritually that we take care of their needs as best we can so that they too 
can live. So there is a great deal of spiritual understanding to be had, even from these physical laws that were back there. Well, let's stop there at the end of the chapter.